Good morning. Let's go ahead and start with the book of Numbers. On Sunday mornings at 8.30, we're talking about relationships. And I want to kind of capsulize some of the high points that I will be going through in this uh, Sunday morning class. And the importance of relationships and how we conduct our relationships. When we think of relationships, so many times we think of our, the romantic relationship. The relationship with, for us, those of us who are married, our relationships with our wives. For those of us who are in love with someone, we think of that relationship. But there are employer-employee relationships, there are father-mother-children relationships, there are sibling relationships, there are neighbor relationships. Anytime there is any kind of one-on-one communion between two or more people, that constitutes a relationship. And those relationships, they go through conflict. And many times in our relationships, in order to maintain a pleasant relationship, we learn how to dance around the conflict. And sometimes that works on the surface. It makes things pleasant. It makes it so that you don't despise the person who's walking in your direction. But it doesn't do anything to help you grow in a relationship that God has put in your life. And so... We're going to start with Numbers chapter 13, verse 30. But Caleb tried to encourage the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once and take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him answered, We can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread discouraging reports about the land among the Israelites. The land we explored will swallow up any who go to live there. All the people we saw were huge. We even saw giants there. The descendants of Anak. We felt like grasshoppers next to them and that's what we looked like to them. Now you remember this story. Just a few months, maybe weeks before, God had used Moses to bring the Israelite people out of the land of Egypt. He said, I'm going to take you to a new, beautiful land. It's going to be yours. I promised it to you. I've scoped it out. I want you to have it. It's yours. Moses is going to take you out. He's going to lead you there. And so that's where they are. And in this story, we know that Moses sent 12 spies to check out the land. And the 12 spies came back, and Joshua and Caleb said, it's ready for us. Let's go in. Let's get it. It's ours. God promised it to us. And the other 10 spies said, no, we can't go. It's too difficult. It's too hard. We are like grasshoppers in the sight of the people that live there. And they discouraged the entire congregation of people. 
Let's go to uh, Numbers 14, verse 29. God's talking to them now because of their wickedness. You will all die here in this wilderness because you complained against me. None of you who are 20 years old or older and were counted in the census will enter the land I swore to give you. The only exceptions will be Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. And what does this have to do with relationships? Let's now go to the book of Joshua. This is just kind of the introduction. Book of Joshua, chapter 14. Now, part of this book is Joshua has entered in with the children of Israel. They've marched around for 40 years out in the desert. And all the people that were supposed to die because God had told them you were for their discouragement, their disbelief, their disobedience, their refusal to believe what God had told them, they had all died off. It's 40 years later, they've marched into the land and for three, four, five years, they're in the land and they're fighting for their different allotments of land. Joshua is saying, okay, we've taken care of the people over there. Um, okay, you people, uh, Reuben, you go up and live in your land. Um, Nephtali, you've taken care of your people. You guys go up and live in your land. Now, in chapter 14, verse 6, a delegation from the tribe of Judah, led by Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, came to Joshua and Gilgal, at Gilgal. Caleb said to Joshua, Remember what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, about you and me when we were at Kadesh Barnea? I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land of Canaan. I returned and gave from my heart a good report, but my brothers who went with me frightened the people and discouraged them from entering the promised land. For my part, I followed the Lord my God completely. So that day, Moses promised me the land of Canaan on which you were just walking will be your special possession and that of your descendants forever because you wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. Now, as you can see, the Lord has kept me alive. This is Caleb speaking. And well, as he has kept me alive and well as he promised for the, all these 45 years since Moses made this promise even while Israel wandered in the wilderness. Today I am 85 years old. I am as strong now as I was when Moses sent me on that journey, and I can still travel and fight as well as I could then. So I'm asking you to give me the hill country that the Lord promised me. You will remember that as scouts, we found the Anakites living there in great walled cities. But if the Lord is with me, I will drive them out of the land just as the Lord God said. Imagine, you're Joshua and Caleb. You come back with the 12, you come back with the other 10 spies, back to the camp of the Israelites after you've checked out the land. You saw difficulties there, but you remembered God's promise. And you said, God is with us. Let's go take it. Let's go do it. Let's go get it. And then, the other 10 that are with you said, no, let's don't. They said it in such a way that they were able to create fear 
and discouragement in the other people, so much so that now what Joshua and Caleb said was having no effect. The people drowned them out. And God says, you're not going in. You're all going to die off except for Joshua and Caleb. What kind of attitude do you think uh, Caleb and Joshua had toward the people? What would they have been thinking? You guys, you are causing me to miss out on a promise. You've blown it for me and Joshua. That would be running through my mind. But, But I look at what Caleb says. Caleb said, I've been marching around for 45 years and I'm still as strong now. I'm 85 and I'm as strong now as I was back then when you first promised it to me. Now, what would 45 years of resentment do to you? Would you be able to walk with the same attitude? I mean, it says that I have followed God wholeheartedly these 45 years. Would we be walking around with that attitude, still serving God, still full of joy, to the point where there was no resentment to drag us down. 45 years of resentment could really tell on a person. But apparently, it didn't affect Caleb. Because when he walked into the promised land, and after helping everybody else fight for their portion, he said, okay, Joshua, I'm ready for mine. I'm 85. Give me the hill country. Now, the hill country's tough to fight on. But he said, give me the hill country. I'll go take care of him. He never lost sight of the promise. You can't do that walking around with grudges and resentment. Now, let's turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, Adam and Eve, at the time of their creation, they don't have a sin nature. They're walking around in, in total innocence. They don't know what it's like to fight with their their inner self. How long that would have lasted, I don't know. When Satan came, he talked to Eve and he presented to her an alternative for what God had told him. What did God say? He said, earlier, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that I placed in the garden. Satan came and said, you know, did God say you didn't have to eat it? Are you sure? Because you know what? If you, if you eat of it, you'll be like him. You'll become as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, Eve could have no conception, no idea of what Satan was saying to her. All she heard was a voice that wasn't God. When we listen to a voice that's not from the Lord, when we pick up on influences and we accept influences into our lives that are not from God, it gives us an alternative in our lives. It gives us an alternative way to think. It presents us with new choices. When 
Satan came to Eve, he said, let's go down to verse four. And the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the days you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. When we listen to an alternative that has no basis in truth, what we're doing is, is we're, we're accepting a false promise. Something or someone is making a promise to us that has no basis in truth. Whenever we accept something like that, it creates a reality that really isn't there. Now, when I was thinking of this, it was coming clear, and I'm hoping that I'm conveying this. When Eve was presented with this opportunity, now, I don't know exactly what she thought, but placing myself in that situation, my thought would have been, what else is God keeping from me? What else am I not being told? If God's not telling me everything, then I need to reach out. I need to get that. I need to create another reality for me. I need to reach out for what else is there. And we begin to build now our, our own little bundle of truth that has no basis in anything because it's outside of what God had promised. So when, when Eve bought into what Satan was buying, she began to buy into the fact that she could create her own reality. Verse 6 says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and did eat, and gave also to her husband, and he did eat. The serpent, Satan through the serpent, convinced Eve that something was missing in her life. And that's the temptation that comes to us all the time in our lives, especially in our relationships. See, we have our own idea of what we want out of a relationship. When, when, we're, when we get married, we have this wonderful idea of marriage. And we go through all the counseling and we listen to all the people who've been married for a while and they tell us a lot about the realities of marriage. And we sit there and we go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And all the time it's going like this and we're still building our own little reality. We're building the picket fence and the manicured lawn. Others are trying to tell us that the dogs are going to come and dig it up. A car is going to crash into the house. You know, hurricanes are going to come, but it's all going over our heads and we're nailing all the little pieces together and creating this wonderful reality. That's what we do. That's what we do in any given relationship. We interview for a job. Our employers look at us and they, and they listen to what we're telling them. And so as we're talking to our employers, they're thinking, okay, I can use this person for this, 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 and this, and they can do that. And we're saying, okay, these guys are gonna pay me this and I can do this. And, and I can offer this, and, and we've got this neat little thing worked out in this little interview conversation that we're having. Then you get the job, and you go, what, what? The employer says, I hired him. The employee says, I'm working here. 
a new neighbor moves in. We build a fantasy around how we think that neighbor is going to be. Doesn't work out. We move into a neighborhood. We've, we've built a fantasy about moving into a new neighborhood. Never turns out the way it is. We, it's our nature to create our own reality based on whatever information we happen to be carrying with us. Let's go to verse 7. Genesis 3, 7. And the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Okay. Eve ate the fruit. Nothing happened. Apparently nothing happened. She gave the fruit to Adam and Adam ate. Now, I, I don't know how much persuasion it took. It doesn't record it. But if you look at our own relationships, you have two people working on something, you know, husband and wife. And the wife says, no, I want to do this. And the husband says, no, I don't want to. And the wife says, no, I want to do this. And the husband says, I don't want to. And the wife says, A, B, C, D, this is, this is how, C, it'll work just like this. And the husband says, B, C, D, F, you know, I'm, this is why it won't work. Then the wife, come on, and the husband, and, and so there's some back and forth. And then Adam ate the fruit, and then all of a sudden everything was changed. The eyes of both of them were opened. Many times after we've entered into a relationship, we see the reality for what it is. We are now faced with the truth of what we've done. The interesting thing is when God put everything together, he said, okay, I'm making this world and it's going to be beautiful. I'm making a garden. I'm going to make the garden beautiful. I'm going to make man and woman. They're going to be made in my image. They're going to be beautiful. Everything that God did was good. But then what did God do? He placed the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. Now, in our relationships, when we encounter difficulties, the first thing we say is, why did that happen? Why did you do that? Why did you let me down? Why did you create this conflict in our relationship? Well, notice, God didn't put the tree over here where Adam couldn't get to it. He put the tree right there where they could see it every day, knowing that Adam and Eve would look at it, become tempted, and possibly eat it. But why would he do that? Because he knows that in, in order for us to have any kind of meaningful relationship, we have to make a choice. One day I proposed to Evelyn, and she said yes. Now, what if the next day someone else would have proposed? And she said, okay. And that was a Saturday when I proposed. Now, Sunday someone comes and proposes, and she accepts it. Monday comes along, and some, someone comes along on Monday and proposes to her and she accepts it. Tuesday comes along and, and somebody comes along and proposes to her, and she accepts it. Now I'm thinking, <laughs> the decision she made for me had no value, had no depth, had no meaning, but she chose to accept mine, and when she did that, 
she turned off any prospective suitor that would possibly come her way. She made her decision. And for better or for worse, she stuck with it for lo these many years, of which I'm very grateful. God knew that Adam and Eve just living in the garden, I'm sure he enjoyed that relationship, but without them making a decision and a choice for God would have not been a very meaningful relationship for Adam and Eve. There's many things we can look at. When Eve was faced with that decision, what didn't God do? Well, the first thing we know, God didn't put the tree outside of her reach. God also didn't come down to the serpent and say, serpent, don't listen to Satan when he comes to you. He also didn't stop Satan from coming down to the serpent. He didn't stop Eve from taking the fruit. He didn't stand in front of her and said, whoa, and then knock the fruit out of her hand. He didn't jump in front of her and frighten her and that she jumped back and dropped the fruit. God didn't do anything like that. He, when she offered it to Adam, he didn't come flying across the garden and do a flying tackle on Adam before he could take the fruit from Eve. He stood back and he allowed people to make decisions. And that's what he does for us. Now, when Eve was faced with the decision to take the fruit, when Satan came to her and tempted her, and Satan placed that thought in her head, your eyes will be opened and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. When, when she may have started thinking like I would have, what else is God keeping from me? When I would have started to build up a resentment towards God because he was hiding something from me, God didn't come down and say, Eve, Eve, no, it, no, I'm really not like that. I'm, I'm not hiding anything from you. He allowed her to think that. When that resentment built up, just like it does in us, when we're faced with decisions in a relationship because maybe because someone let us down and we're starting to build up a resentment, God, God just doesn't run and, and just stop us and and tell us not to do these things. He, he, lets us, he lets us worry with this. He lets us mull it over. He lets that disturbance gnaw at us. It's, it's not that he wants it to. Just like Eve, she resisted what God had told her earlier about eating the fruit and decided to do it. We can resist God when he speaks to us through the word. We can resist him when he tells us that we need to love each other with the same love that Christ loved us and, and hold grudges and hold resentment and let it build up because at some point we need to recognize the truth that we know in the word and we need to make a hard decision. No, I'm not going to hold on to that because that's the only way we can make meaningful decisions and have meaningful relationships. Anybody who's been married for a certain length of time can sit down and talk to you about the difficulties that went on in their marriages. And most people that have been married for a long time can say, you know, well, maybe not most, but a lot. They can say, you know, 
things got to a point where just this, we were this close from either divorce or murder. And I, I say that tongue in cheek, but it talks about the, the anger, the resentment, the, the feelings that boil up. And at some point, we have to decide, I, I don't want that. I, I want to let that go. I want to start thinking of them in the way that Jesus Christ thinks about me, and I'm going to let that go. And when we do that, of our own free will, out of a hard choice, then that creates a relationship that was deeper than it was before. That's how we continue to grow in love and grow in our relationships. Now, we we talked about what God didn't do. God didn't strike Adam or Eve down. Eve said, we may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither touch it, lest you die. Eve mentioned it. Eve said, if we eat it, we'll die. But God didn't kill them. Now, they began the process of spiritual death, and they also began the process of, of that deterioration from the perfect. God created a perfect world, and as soon as they ate the fruit, things began to deteriorate. God didn't come and, and kill them. And so many times when, when we make decisions in our lives, God's provision, because he's a loving and a patient God, he always has a provision. Now, he didn't come down and kill Adam and Eve. What he did was he came down and he clothed them. Adam said, hey, all of a sudden, I feel exposed. Now, it wasn't because the earth was populated and everybody was going to look at him. It was because he knew he had sinned. And he knew that the next time that God came walking in the garden, he couldn't present himself to God feeling and looking the way he was. So he tried to cover himself. They used fig leaves. But God came and clothed them with skins. And then he had a conversation with, with the three of them, Adam and Eve and Satan, and he said, okay, I've got a provision. You know, there's going to be a time when there's going to be a Messiah, Savior. And, and all this mess that you've got yourself into, there's going to be a provision for you to have forgiveness. There's going to be a provision for you to have a release. There's going to be a provision for you to let go. And we have that. Many times we make decisions that are really crummy. Here we are, Adam and Eve, they're living in the garden. Everything is perfect. Was it Eve's fault that God put the tree right where she could get to it? That was out of her control. Now, Eve took the fruit. She responded. She reacted badly to the situation. She ate the fruit. Now, Eve comes to Adam, and he looks at her and goes, what have you done? That was outside of Adam's control. Much has been said about, where was Adam when Eve ate the fruit? He must not have been around. He should have been around. It was his fault. I don't know. I don't know where he was. I don't know what he was thinking. He might have been standing right there next to her and didn't do anything when she, when she reached out to take the fruit. But she did it. We are people who react badly to many situations in our lives. 
I'm faced with decisions. Sometimes I just act and react badly and I do the wrong thing. I say the wrong thing. I'm also living with a lot of you. You know, we have a relationship. I have a relationship with my wife and kids. They are faced with the same thing. They are faced with a decision and they react badly. So we're all a bunch of people reacting badly surrounded by more people who are reacting badly. This causes conflict. But then God has a provision. One of that provision is submitting everything to him. Remember, we, we read the story about Caleb. Caleb could have walked around the next 45 years in total resentment, total anger towards the children of Israel. I mean, can you imagine stomping in circles around the desert? These people, I'm marching around here because they, I, oh, I don't know about these. We know that holding that kind of resentment, well, if it doesn't kill us, it will make us ineffective in our lives. But 45 years later, Caleb walks up and says, I've been faithful. I'm in the land that God has promised me. In all these years, I'm still strong. Give me what's mine. Let me go out and take it. We can't do that when we're still reacting badly. God had a provision. The provision for Caleb was continued health and vitality until he got where God promised him. In our particular lives, I don't know what the provision is for every single situation, but there is a provision. You have to look for it. You have to get in the Word. You have to submit to the Lord. You have to say, Lord, where are you taking me with this? And chances are, you'll experience some incredibly cool thing because of it. You'll grow from it. You will enhance the lives of those around you because of it. Caleb's family followed a very strong, older, wise guy into a battle. They reaped the rewards of Caleb's faithfulness. When you begin to respond rightly to a conflict in your lives, people around you will benefit. And with every situation, it's going to be different. It all comes from making choices. Sometimes we'll make the wrong ones. Sometimes we make the right ones. And when we make the wrong ones, look for the provision that will help us to make the right one. When we look at what Eve did, we look at that temptation. That temptation was the only thing at that time that gave meaning to her life. I think about our commitment. I think about our vows in marriage. When we take a vow, when we make a commitment, and we say, I will love you whatever the cost, and we live by that, and we stick by that, that gives meaning to that commitment. It gives meaning to that relationship. I think about the, the argument, and I've seen this so many times over the years, and we see it more and more often. When two people decide to hook up without the benefit of marriage, and they say, well, let's, let's live like we're married, but 
We don't need the paper. There's no meaning to that. There's no depth in that. Because what it says is, I love you so much, I just don't want to take that step. I don't want to go that far. There's no meaning in that kind of relationship. There can be a lot of feel good. There could be a lot of emotion. There can be a lot of pleasantries. But until we take the ultimate step and say, I'm going to love you so much, I will do anything. I will sign papers. I will take the bullet. I will stick with you when it gets so bad that anyone else would leave you. That's the only thing that gives a relationship meaning and depth. Now, outside of a marriage relationship, we can still have that same kind of relationship. There are legal ramifications we have to worry about sometimes in business relationships. And the book of Proverbs is very explicit about establishing certain legal relationships that we have to be obedient to and be, be cognizant of. But when it's saying, I want to give myself to you, I want to present myself to you, I want to offer something to you, and then I will stand by that no matter what. And then decisions come by and along that cause you to have to exercise that. You actually have to do it. Because you can always back off. You can say the words and then back off. But when the situation comes along and you actually have to do the thing to prove your words, then that has meaning. If we can't do that, there was really no union in the first place. Last week in our 8.30 class, we were talking about love. And Bobby said something that's so astute, I'll never forget it. He said, most people think of love as a give and take, give and take. He said, but that's not right. That's trading. Love is when you give all, even if you're not getting in return. So we don't want to live in a relationship of I'll do this if you do that. Because there are people who claim to not have a relationship with Christ who seem to have successful relationships. But see, we're intelligent beings. And we can learn from observation. We can learn from making mistakes. We can establish a relationship in such a way that when we see conflict, we can say, okay, I've seen what happens when I do that. I won't do that. I see what happens when I do this to them. I won't do that. I, and we learn how to get along. We've learned how to exist, you know, more or less peacefully with people in our lives. But that doesn't establish a true relationship. Many marriages are built on that. Many marriages appear to have everything that anybody would ever want, and neither one of them claim to have Christ in their lives. It may be that they've just used their intelligence, their street smarts, whatever, to, to know how to get along. And maybe the conflict that's come into their lives, they've learned how to deal with it on a superficial level that establishes superficial peace. But there are many of us that have gone to the deep end in our relationships with our wives. 
you know, so deep that, you know, when the ship sinks, the flag's not even sticking above the water on the topmost mast. And you think it's never coming up. But then it does. And not because you were astute enough to figure something out to make it come back up. It was because somebody, or both people, somewhere along the line, submitted their lives to Christ and were obedient. And God was able to work really cool stuff. And that can happen in any given relationship. Many of our relationships seem sunk, but then somebody says, you know, I don't want this in my life. I don't want to carry this resentment. I don't want to carry this anger. I don't want to carry this pain. And then God does something and the relationship is resurrected. If we just remember that everybody around you has their turns to react badly to the temptations in their lives just as you do to yours. Everybody around you is just as frail as you are in the flesh. That's part of the battle. The key part is just as frail as you, which means, yeah, I don't do it right. I get it wrong. I react badly. Then God has a chance to work. And remember, God doesn't come rushing down. He didn't come rushing down to Adam. He didn't come down and say, Adam, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry I gave you Eve. Let me get rid of her and give you somebody else that works better. He didn't do that. He said, Adam, this is Eve, for better or for worse. Work through it. I'm going to give you provision to work through it. See, most of the time, we're looking for the way out. We're looking for God to come down and say, yeah, you messed up. I'm going to make everything right and bring all the right stuff in your life so that you won't miss out on everything that you planned on doing. When I first thought of that, it, it, it was kind of humorous to me. Adam, Adam, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I messed up. I didn't mean to give you Eve. I meant to give you Hilda. <laughs> Eve just got in there somehow. Hilda's much better. She won't eat the fruit. Well, if she hadn't, Adam would have been wrecked it for Hilda. It seems like I always end up in 1 Corinthians 13. I heard somebody mention verse 4. We're going to verse 4. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient and kind. That's not us so much. That's God. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud. See, God wasn't so jealous that he kept Adam away from everything. He didn't get so jealous that he said, if I put the tree there, oh, he's going to fall. I'm not going to let him do that. Or if I give him Eve, she's going to tempt him. He's going to, oh, I can't do that either. What, what else can I do to protect Adam so he'll never, ever, ever fall? God didn't do that because he's not jealous. Verse 5, it's not rude. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable, and it keeps no, no record of when it has been wronged. That's the hard part. That's what causes the resentment. That's the grudge. We keep a record of when it's wrong. Love doesn't do that. It is never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Love will last forever. That's where we want to live. The only way that that can happen is when we submit 
our lives, our decisions, everything that we do, we have to submit it to God. None of it's us. That's not in us. So I want us to go to prayer. Just examine your hearts and ask the Lord. Oh, tell the Lord, I react badly to stuff in my life. Then ask Him to forgive you and ask Him to give you the power, the love, whatever you need so that you don't hold that same resentment, that same grudge, that same weight that will destroy you in your relationships.